We're waiting. <laughs> Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, and for note-takers, it's I-95. Now, if you were on I-95, the road, and you were traveling south from Pittsburgh, you'd be on your way to Florida. But this is increment 95 of our Hebrews 2020 series, entitled, We See Jesus. We'll be considering several words today. And one of them is going to be katapausis. In fact, that'll be our focus. K-A-T-A-P-A-U-S-I-S. Katapausis, really. And this is what it would look like if it were transliterated into English letters. Kata. Pausis, or katapausis, the accent on the second syllable. It means rest, and it means a lot more. So we'll be getting into that catch word from Hebrews as we continue from Hebrews 4.1 and following. And so, Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to engage in the most important thing we can engage in in this life, the one needful thing, which is to sit at the feet of our Lord Jesus, as it were, and to hear his word. We pray that the Spirit will direct us today so that we can understand your word in a way that imparts insight and that imparts extraordinary incentive for forward progress in a life and a livingness that truly brings honor to you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Words matter. That's become a motto of late. And this maxim is never more applicable than when speaking of words in the Scripture. No accurate interpretation of the Scripture comes about without a careful analysis of words. As the scripture says, every word of God is pure. In Proverbs 30 and verse 5. And as Jesus said in combat with the adversary, man will not live, meaning the man, Christ Jesus even, will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Words do matter, and no interpretation of the Scripture can be true without a careful analysis of words. The PT uses the exegetical device here, which we've considered before. It's used not only by the rabbis in ancient rabbinical exegesis, but it's also used elsewhere in ancient literature. It's called Gezerah Shawa, G-E-Z-E-R-A-S-H-A-W-A. And that's a means of exegesis where a catchword is taken from one verse and it's seen in another verse. And so the two verses are joined together by this 
single catchword or sometimes a catchphrase. In our case today, it's katapausis, the word that is our catchword by Gezerah Shava. The pastor here who writes this homily has spent a lot of time on what might be called a midrash of Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, where in the Greek Bible it's Psalm 94, 7 through 11. And he still continues in a kind of a midrash or exposition from that passage all the way through Hebrews 4.11. And so it's still hovering over us, that passage. And he uses the exegetical device called Gezerah Shawa to capitalize or make the most of one word from the Septuagint of Psalm 94, 7 through 11, which is also quoted in Hebrews 3.11 and 3.18, that being katapausis, meaning rest, or katapasis, meaning rest. Katapasis is found in Hebrews 4.1. It's found in Hebrews 4.3 twice. It's found in Hebrews 4.5, 4.8, and 4.9. 4.9 in connection with the Sabbath, Sabaton, Sabaton, Sabaton. And then it's also found in 4.10 and 4.11. So combined with Hebrews 3.11 and 18, it's used a total of 10 times in this homily. So is the word Jesus or the name Jesus 10 times. It's used more than that, but 10 times it's used simply and alone as the name for our Lord. Ten times in Hebrews. It gives us the idea that the rest is in Jesus. In fact, that the rest is Jesus. Katapasis, therefore, refers metaphorically to the spiritual salvific completion that God provides for his people. A saving completion that this fullness is called rest is of note in that it denotes a cessation of labor and a stoppage of works or activity. Katapasis emphasizes the calm that comes with the cessation of activity. Rest in the land of Canaan For the second desert generation, that is, for the generation following the Exodus generation, that would involve tranquility and calm after the activity of warfare against the seven belligerent tribes there. In Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 9, that resting place called the Promised Land is paired with the word inheritance. This time, the word is kleronomian, K-L-E-R-O-N-O-M-I-A-N. Kleronomian, K-L-E-R-O-N-O-M-I-A-N, means inheritance. And so rest, katapausen, is related to inheritance, kleronomia, and that word is deployed in Hebrews 11.8. 8. 
where it refers to the place, topos, that Abraham was called to go out to. Go out to a place that I will show you. Topos, a place, God said to Abraham. In Hebrews 9.15, the word inheritance, kleronomian, is used as that which comes to beneficiaries after the death of one who makes a will and testament. There's a play on the word diatheke for testament or covenant there with a reference to the death of Jesus. In other words, it's by the death of Jesus that the beneficiaries receive the inheritance. Much more can be said upon that, and we will get to that, hopefully, by the grace of God in Hebrews 9.15. Now, besides being paired with inheritance, and more importantly, to the immediate context, katapausis is also linked with the seventh day, in which God rested from all the works he had begun to do. And so by Gezerah Shawa, we have the connection of katapausis in Psalm 94, 11 in the Septuagint, and in Genesis 2, 3. The PT makes a, an ingenious connection between rest, as it's found in Psalm 94, 7 through 11, especially 11, and as it's found in Genesis 2, 2, where it says God rested from all the works he had begun to do. Now, in a way, what I'm doing today is a commentary before I do the translation of Hebrews 4, 1 to 11, and I'm going to close with that today, a whole section translated 4, 1 to 11. But there's a lot to put the arms of our mind around in this, and so to sort out the various features in it is going to be surprisingly beneficial. It says, God rested from all the works he had done. But only the Septuagint and a few other astute translators discover that in 2.3, it says the works that God began to do. And that little nuance opens up a whole vista of insight and doctrine because it implies that the creative work of God is not done, not completed, but it goes on. In fact, I'll suggest something that it's only completed through the death of his son, through the cross of Jesus Christ. So that even creation is an act of instauration. That's a big doctrinal insight to hit you with right now. So we have to unfold it as a flag is unfurled. That'll take some time. But we're beginning to do that even now. The seventh day, in turn, is related to the Sabbath. There's another word of significance, S-A-B-B-A-T-O-N, sabbaton. 
It's a day set apart to the Lord your God, says the scripture, on which Israel was to do no work. Please emphasize that in your mind. To do no work. And Exodus 35, 2 says, on penalty of death. Now that's going to figure prominently as we unfold this doctrine. So again, there's a lot to sort out in Hebrews 4, 1 to 11. But if we take the time to carefully consider what's in there, we'll arrive at some very helpful insights and receive some pretty considerable incentive for forward progress, spiritually speaking. We'll also have opportunity to deploy Gezerah Shawa in our own creative ways to illustrate and demonstrate just what the state of completion can look like, even in this life, in anticipation of the beatific vision, when we see him as he is and are made like him. So again, we have the connection to the word, and words matter, sabaton, S-A-B-B-A. T-O-N. Sabaton. So this word rest, katapausis, is related to Sabbath. It's related to inheritance. It's related to the cessation of activity, the calm, the tranquility that comes from the cessation of activity. So right off the bat, I will suggest that the cessation of works called for in Hebrews, is inextricably linked to the cessation of what we will call Adamic ontology. Now, if you've been with us through the study of Romans, the epistle, and of Better Call Paul, you understand a little bit about what Adamic ontology means. And I hope to explain a little bit, explicate as we go. And so the cessation of works that is called for is actually a ceasing and desisting of our activity in Adam, or the old man, or the paleos anthropos, paleo man, another word we give for it in our study of Romans, which we'll take up and bring into this study. Remember, we came to Hebrews via Romans, among other things. Further, I will suggest that the cessation from our works is congruent with standing still and seeing the salvation of the Lord. For the cessation of our works accentuates God's work for everything having to do with salvation, in fact, with creation, with restoration, transformation, are works of God which he began in his work of creation and finishes through the finished work of Christ. So I will suggest in our exegesis that the cessation from our works is congruent with or agreeable with standing still and seeing the salvation of the Lord for the work of salvation is the work of God. Exodus fourteen thirteen, And of course, salvation is of the Lord Psalm 3.8, Jonah 2.9, etc. Thirdly, 
I will suggest that the katapasis, referring to God's own rest, is a synonym for his ultimately being all and in all, or being all in all. 1 Corinthians 15.28. Now here's where we're getting a little innovative, but I think we'll be correct in our innovation. Besides dealing with the completion of creation via the death of Jesus Christ, we are likening this term katapausis with other terminology throughout the New Testament. So I'm going to thirdly suggest that katapausis refers to God's rest as a synonym for the universal perichoresis. You'll see all these words in print. There are many of them. And this involves an eschatology of a universal salvation, a universal soteriological eschatology. Perichoresis is a word used for it. The patristic scholars use that term. Circumincession is another and it simply means the mutual interpenetration of the triune God with all of a completed creation. And creation is only completed by redemption, an act of redemption. Creation is only completed, becoming the new creation of all things for eternal life through the act of redemption which is an act in and by Christ Jesus. Consequently, katapausis or katapausis or rest is synonymous with other words in scripture like apokatastasis, pantone, the phrase that means the restoration of all things. Every believer in the 21st century should become familiar with these synonyms or terms of a universal restoration. Another word is anapsukios, A-N-A-P-S-U-X-E-O-S, less familiar than apocatastasis, but it means universal refreshment, and it refers to the times of refreshment that are coming when the Lord comes. Both apokatastasis and anapsukios are found in Acts 3.20 and 21. Also, katapausis can be, or katapausis can be synonymous with anakephaliosis tapanta, which is the universal recapitulation of everything in heaven and earth in Christ. That's Ephesians 1.10. We've looked at that pretty regularly. A synonym for that is also palingenesia, from the two Greek words pollen, which means again, and genesia, which means genesis or generation. Palingenesia is a genesis, but it's a new genesis that finally completes the creation. It's a universal regeneration. Jesus mentioned it in Matthew 19, 28. This is also synonymous with the phrase 
kinetisis, K-A-I-N long E, K-T-I-S-I-S, which is the new creation, which is also a universal thing because it's, look, I've made all things new. Revelation 21.5, I'm making all things new. Then another one that we don't use that often and haven't but will, apolutrosis, A-P-O-L-U-T-R, long O-S-I-S. Apolutrosis, usually translated as redemption, is used in its universal sense in Romans 8.23 because it talks about all of creation waiting for the redemption. That means an e- a, a redemption that is eternal, but it also means a redemption that's universal. It's, of course, connected to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus at the cross in Romans 3.24. Jesus Christ himself is called our redemption. Redemption. Apolutrosis. 1 Corinthians 1.30. And Ephesians 4.30 refers to a day of redemption. Don't grieve the spirit whereby you have been sealed until the day of redemption. And that refers to the redemption of your body, my body, our body. And that goes in connection with a redemption of all creation. And perhaps most significantly, katapausis is synonymous with a word that we have, again, not too often considered in the Greek, but a whole lot in English, and that is, and I'll just give it in the English transliteration, A-P-O-K-A-T-A-L-L-A-X-A-I. Apokatalaxai, and then the word tapanta. And that translates as the reconciliation of all things or, properly, the universal reconciliation. Now, the reason I say that most of all is because in Colossians 1.20, that reconciliation is related explicitly and inextricably to the peace that God made through the blood of Christ's cross. And that's where we have to stauru, to stauru, T-O-U-S-T-A-U-R-O-U, to stauru. That word, again, is the root of the word instauration. So the big idea is that God began to do the works of creation and after the beginning, he rested in Genesis 2-3. But he, ha- he only completes his creation in Christ and by the cross of Christ. And so the cross is actually the main tool that the builder of all things uses to make the final creation. Now, those things sound unfamiliar to you because I've never really said them. Uh, I've never said them that way. Somebody probably has somewhere, but that's why we need to iron these things out. There's wrinkles in the doctrine, as it were. We've got to iron it out. Fourthly, 
the special nuance of catapasis is that it is a salvific state, a state of soteria or salvation, which can be entered to a very meaningful degree and in an experiential measure, a, a thing that you can really experience even now, though in the eschatological future it will be entered and enjoyed completely. So the thing about rest is you can enter it now, even in these mortal bodies, even in this evil age, even against all rationale of this age and all rationalism and empiricism, you can enter into this by faith. And you can enter into a calm and a peace, an intrapsychic unit integrity that works out to an, what is called a harmonia exoteric, a harmony among people that is a foreview of what will be in the universal new creation after the coming of Jesus Christ. So again, the special nuance of katapausis is that, or katapausis, is that it is a salvific state, a dynamic state of being, which can be entered in a meaningful degree and by a meaningful measure even now Though in the eschatological future, following the resurrection of the body, it will be entered and enjoyed completely and by all. So to milk the value of the word katapausis, the PT cites Genesis 2. And I've quoted it and I've translated it from the Greek text so that you'll, again, you'll be able to see this in print. A lot of this, this is one message that's going to have to be looked at in print to follow it out because it's, it's very difficult even to say it verbally. Genesis 2, 2 and 3 reads this way. And on the sixth day, God completed. Please notice that word completed. Suntaleo is the Greek word. S-U-N-T-E-L. E omega O. Soon teleo. That's related to the word teleo, which is related to the word tetelestai, which is the word that essentially means to complete or completion, which is the key word of Hebrews. And as we've seen, there are 56 psalms that are introduced by telos, which have to do with regarding completion. So on the sixth day, God completed the works that he had made. And on the seventh day, he rested. And that's where Gezer Shawa comes in. Kata Pausen. K-A-T-E-P-A-U-S-E-N in the verbal form. He rested. So you see how the, the PT is using Gezer Shawa by taking the they shall not enter my rest, or if they shall enter my rest, in Psalm 94.11 in the Septuagint, and how he uses that same word rest and finds it in Genesis 2.2 and uses it with effect. For one thing, he's kind of universalizing the rest and taking it out of the local 
rest of a specific piece or tract of land in Canaan and making it a far wider universal horizon. He's expanding the horizon of the rest, in other words. And then it says this, and this really struck me today as I looked at every word. In Genesis 2, 3, or yesterday, I guess, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because on that day he rested. Again, katapausen. It's spelled K-A-T-E-P-A-U-S-E-N in the verbal form. He rested from all his works that God had begun to make. See, words matter. And that little word, had begun to make, matters. Because the implication is that when God finished making what he was making, he wasn't done with creation. In fact, it's my contention that God did not complete his creation until Jesus said, and maybe only in the hearing of one disciple whom Jesus loved, named John, Jesus said from the cross to Telestai. Finished, completed. What was completed? Well, that verse, John 19.30, finds a complement in Revelation 21.5 and 6, where God from the throne, Jesus is God, the throne is the cross, God from the throne says, look, I'm making everything new, and it is done, it is made, it is made, it is finished, it is made. God does not complete his creation except through an act of redemption. The act of redemption by which he completes creation is the death of Jesus Christ followed by his burial, resurrection, ascension, coronation, session and enthronement at the right hand of the Father where he is right now. Now, would you like to add anything to that? Then you'll never enter into his rest. So notice that in 2.2 it says God rested from all the works he had made. And that in 2.3 it says God rested from all his works which he had begun to make. So the Septuagint captures this nuance. The implication is that God was yet to complete his creation. And this he would do and has done through Jesus Christ, who from the cross, and again, possibly only heard by the disciple whom Jesus loved when he said, to Telestai. Maybe he looked at John, the disciple whom he loved, and winked as he said it. People like to talk about a God wink. Well, there's one. Finished. Now for us, and here's where we're taking some, we're taking our machete, or which really is a machaira, a two-edged sword, 
and cutting a path through some dense underbrush, spiritually speaking. For us to enter into rest is to cease functioning altogether in the Adamic ontology. Now let me explain a little bit about that ontology. That's a, it's a philosophical branch which is simply about the study of being. So ontology is the study of being or the nature of being. We would say that it's a way of being or we could even call it beingness. So Adamic ontology is simply a being in solidarity with Adam who sinned. So for us to cease from our works is to cease from functioning altogether in the Adamic ontology. Now, just as there once was a, here's another word, solidarity, a unity, a unit cohesion or a unit integrity of all humanity in Adam, just as there was once a solidarity of all humanity in Adam, so now there is a solidarity of all humanity in Christ. And because of this, I've coined a new term. Christological doesn't cut it. Christocentric doesn't cut it. What cuts it is Christic. Christic, which is kind of like Christic. Christic, because that is over and against what we call Adamic. Adamic. So even as there is a solidarity in Adam, all die. So there is a solidarity in Christ. In Christ, all will be made alive. And in fact, in Ephesians 2.5, you have already been made alive together in Christ. You went from dead in sins to being alive in Christ by grace. Grace is unconditional. Because it's unconditional, it has to be universal. Otherwise, God has no integrity. But that's another subject altogether. Well, that's a Romans subject. We've already broached that subject and dealt with it pretty thoroughly. So because of the solidarity in Adam versus the solidarity of humanity in Christ... There is now a Christic ontology that replaces an Adamic ontology. In other words, there's now a way of being in Christ that is distinct from and in fact totally opposite to the way of being in Adam. Another way of looking at it is the new man has entered. The old man, Adam, has been replaced. Put on the new man. Strip off the old man. Adam's time has come and gone, just like the time of the giants in Canaan. Their time is done. Caleb, who had a spirit of faith, said their time is up. They're done. Lots of times we see evil trends in history 
and people freak out and they act in their Adamic ontology by fretting, worrying, anxiety, fear, hysteria, and passing that hysteria to others. They see evils in their present time. The spirit of faith sees those evils as having done. They're done. They may rear their ugly heads. They may mouth off like Goliath, but they're just going down. They're going down. Those evils are going down. Some people walk by sight and freak out at the evils of their time. Other people walk by faith and see the defeat of those evils in Christ. You choose how you want to live. As for me, I'll live with my eyes on Jesus Christ. I'll live with the spirit of faith. Thank you. And so this puts a whole new twist on what's known as universalism. To say universalism is to slap a fundamentalist in the face because they hate that word. They hate the idea of a universal salvation because that kicks out their last prop that they lean on. I believed. I behave. I'm good. I'm going to heaven because I'm good or because I believed or because I'm a Christian or because I've, been, I've done this and done that and gave up this and gave up that. Universalism is kind of a slap in the face to them. But this might be a slap in the face of the universalist because universalism refers not only to the universe in all its times, but it refers to each and every human in all of our being. It refers to the individual in his or her universal being. In her or his essential being, essence, and acts. In other words, heart, mind, soul, body, spirit. The Lord requires the universal you, all of you, all of me. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your bodily strength. That's a requirement of the universal you, the universal me. Now, don't worry about it. Don't fret because we have to cease from our own works. We're not going to realize that by our own working. A lot of people are constantly praying, but their prayer is even a work. So you might have already trusted God for something that someone wants you to pray for, and you say, I have prayed for that. I do trust God that it will happen. Well, would you pray? No. Would you pray hard? Hell no. Pray hard? Well, there are certain things that we pray for. We pray without ceasing. We pray daily. But if you've already trusted the Lord for a certain outcome, you're backsliding to pray for it. All right. I know that's a little too rebellious. Uh, that, well, that's, that's a little too revolutionary for some of you, so we'll back off. Now, this... Loving the Lord, when God has the universal person, the person in all their being, 
That person loves the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and they love their neighbor as themselves. This only happens, listen carefully to this, this only happens when a person's universal being is controlled by the love of Christ. Till then you can pretend to love everybody. Till then you can pretend to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But it's just another work from which we have to cease. Consider this trio of declarations from Paul who enjoyed liberation from Adamic ontology and who had entered more than any other into a Christic ontology. Arguably, Paul entered into that Christic ontology and was relieved from the Adamic ontology more manifestly than any other writer in history, and in, even in the New Testament. Paul, as an example of someone who was under the Christic ontology and the livingness that is in Christ, he said, for me, living is Christ, and to die is gain. He said these three things, and I find these to be a trio of what happens when you are universally under control by God, by the Lord, by the King of Kings, by our great King. First, we have such hope. We've looked at that clearly, 2 Corinthians 3.12. Second, we have the same spirit of faith, 2 Corinthians 4.13, like Caleb and like the faith heroes, but most of all, like Jesus. Third, we are controlled by the love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.14, because we've made the judgment after reflection that if one died for all, then all died. So loving all the human race is impossible unless first there's the determination in your mind or the judgment in your mind or the conclusion in your mind that when Christ died, he died for all. So everyone then from that point on to you is someone who died in Christ and is new in him and new creation in him. That changes your whole perspective, your, not only your world view, but your view of all humankind. So Paul said, from now on, I don't know any person according to the dictates of the flesh or according to what people identify as in the flesh. For if anyone's in Christ, there's a new creation. So universalism put that in quotes, deals not only with all of humanity in Christ, but also with the totality of each individual in him. Now, as we wind down to a close in increment 95, and I try to pack each increment with a whole lot of doctrine because who knows how long we'll be free to do this. So I jam-pack everything I can into every message. Another device used in the scriptures is creative repetition. 
We have the creation story, for example, the creation of man and woman. We have that in Genesis 2, but then it's creative, creatively repeated in Genesis 5 with some amplification. And that's a device in the Hebrew scriptures. It's a, another device used in the scriptures is what I would call creative repetition with amplification. Now, let's do that. I'm, I'm going to do that in this very message. So let's amplify, repeat, and amplify. Gezerah Shawa, again, is a tool employed in the exegesis of the scriptures. It's a method that was significantly deployed in exegesis by the ancient rabbis. Not only them, though, also some philosophers. Gezerah Shawa makes something of the use of a word or a phrase in one verse or one section of scripture that's also found in another verse elsewhere. Now, out of the blue and out of ex nihilo, out of nowhere, I'm going to do our own creative use of Gezerah Shava with the word sweat or no sweat. And that's going to illustrate what I mean by ceasing from our own works to enter into rest is a cessation of Adamic ontology or a beingness in Adam after the fall. And so we have, we've already seen how katalpasis is used in Hebrews 3.11, 3.18, and then from the Septuagint of Psalm 94.11 and throughout Romans or Hebrews 4. We've also seen how katalpasis relates to Genesis 2, 2, and 3 for rest. So God creates a relationship between Psalm 95.11 or Septuagint 94.11 and Genesis 2, 2, and 3, with the connector being the noun katalpasis and its verbal form katapao in Genesis 2, 2, and 3. And this speaks, therefore, of what is known as God's primordial or protological rest, where it says God rested after finishing the works of creation. And this can be compared to John 19.30 and Revelation 21.5 and 6. In Genesis 2.2-3, in turn, this rest of God is associated with the seventh day. Therefore, the pastor-teacher concludes that if there was a rest into which God entered on the seventh day, and this is associated with the celebration of the Sabbath, then he concludes that there remains a Sabbath observation or an observance of Sabbath and a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There still remains that rest, and it's not entry into a promised land. The rest is, in essence, the celebration of an endless eschatological Sabbath. It is a celebration that involves great joy and great peace. One does not enter this rest without a cessation of one's works. One does not enter into God's rest except by faith, which involves the stoppage of one's own works. Now, here's where I'm going to employ Gezerah Shawa in a creative way to show that the cessation of our works is, in effect, the termination of our operation in Adamic ontology. Ontology simply means, again, the nature of being. We call it, I would call it, beingness, or a way of being. Adamic ontology 
means a beingness in Adam. It's a being in the nature that comes down to human beings through Adam. It is a sinfulness in its essence, a being in sin or under the reign of sin. This beingness is existence under the reign of sin in Romans 5.21 through 6.14. It is a solidarity of humanity in the first man, Adam, and therefore there is a solidarity of humanity in sin. It's called the old humanity because a new humanity has supplanted it in Colossians 3.11, in Ephesians 2.15. But there is also a solidarity of humanity in the last Adam, the second man, the second representative man. It is new humanity. In, his, in this new humanity, Christ is all and he's in all. Colossians 3.11. Again, this is the new humanity. So consider by Gezerah Shawa the word works, and that's ergon, E-R-G-O-N. Ergon, works, as, de- as deployed in Hebrews 4.3, 4.4, And then consider Genesis 3.17. This is my Gezerah Shawa, and I think the Lord wants us to be creative and innovative. Genesis 3.17, God says to Adam in the Septuagint, Cursed is the earth in your works. Uses the same word, ergon, that's used in Hebrews 4.3.4.4.4.10. Cursed is the earth in your works. This is Adam after he disobeyed. Or sometimes it's called labors. Ergois, the plural of ergon. Now, follow Genesis 3.17 into 3.19, Adam's curse had to do with, quote, getting bread to eat by the sweat of his face. I'm dealing now with the Septuagint translation, which is the one that the Hebrews PT uses, so I think it's probably reliable. The sweat of Adam's face came about Because of the works that he had to perform in order to get bread to eat. Now from there, another verse came to mind, Ezekiel 44.18. Where the Levitical priests in God's house, especially in the inner courts, when they began to approach the Holy of Holies... They were instructed to wear linen clothing and to wear nothing that would cause sweat. Now, the Septuagint has B-I-Z-A for sweat in the new, but in the New English translation, that which is usually translated as force or violence is considered to be B-I-Z-A, not B-I-A. And it refers to the Hebrew Biza, B-I-Z-A, which means sweat. The modern Greek Bible of Ezekiel 44, 18, it's now in public domain, has hydrota, where we get the word hydrated, perhaps, comes from this. I'm not sure, but I think, I suspect it might. Hydrota, for sweat. There are many connections to Jesus, the second Adam here, 
For example, Jesus wore the crown of thorns, which is reminiscent of the thorns and thistles that come from the earth when Adam is planting and cultivating and raising crops. And Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in the course of his passion. The sweat of the face of the second Adam was blood. Luke twenty-two twenty-four. So the creative use of Gezer Shawa may seem elaborate here. It may seem like what I'm doing here is elaborate and even bizarre. And it may be even beside what the PT is after, but I think it's very profitable for us to see in the cessation of our works a cessation of operation in the Adamic ontology that goes along with our solidarity with Christ, who, from the cross, ceased from his works, saying, it is finished, in bringing about the new creation. The new creation is God's originally intended creation from the beginning, because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the word that he uses for beginning is Christ, Arche, NRK, in Christ, the beginning. God makes the heavens and the earth. And so the creative use of Gezer Shawa here for no sweat refers to Adam working and sweating, but us, like the priests of the Old Testament, not sweating, not working in the inner courts of God. Not sweating because we've ceased from the kind of works that causes the sweat of our face, as it were. The new creation is God's originally intended creation from the beginning. So the creation of the first man, Adam, was only the beginning of God's creation. It would not end until the second man, Adam, entered. And so we have verses like Genesis 1.1, Genesis 2.2, Ephesians 1.10, creation in Christ Jesus. Finished, in John 19.30, is related to made, or finished, or done, or completed, or made, such as in Psalm 22.31. Just as righteousness is what God and the Lamb have done. So for us... The cessation of our works is the stripping off of Adamic ontology, Adamic beingness, Adamic way of being, or the livingness of Adam. And that's equivalent to the stripping off of the old man with his practices. Colossians 3.9, also known as his works. So Hebrews emphasizes the works or the practices of the old man that must be ceased. The old man, the Adamic man, human beings in solidarity with Adam and in the Adamic ontology, that's put off, left behind, cease and desist from it. Ephesians emphasizes the person of the old man 
which is the Adamic ontology in Ephesians 4.22. Colossians emphasizes the person of the old man and adds his deeds. So what's put off is not only Adam or the Adamic man, but his deeds. And so we cease from the works of the Adamic man, Colossians 3.9. Now, this is all new stuff. We're just hacking away at the underbrush. So I'll be repeating some of this. Don't worry, and I can even read your countenance out there. You can't understand it. You're frustrated. Don't worry about it. I'm going to finish this and deal with this in subsequent messages. Hebrews then emphasizes the works that are stopped when the old man is stripped off. And so our experience of the rest that God has for us requires the cessation of all activity in the Adamic person who is under the reign of sin. How can that happen? How can we cease altogether from Adamic ontology? Well, for it starts this way. I was crucified with Christ. This is how we enter into rest. This is how we go on to completion. This is how we begin to experience the salvific fullness that God has for us even now, though completely only in the New Jerusalem. Stripping off the old man also reminds us of Hebrews 12.1, where it says, strip off every weight that slows us down especially the sin that so easily trips us up so that we can run with endurance the race, and there it is, agona, the agona God has set before us. The sin that easily trips us up is unbelief. So let's conclude this increment with a working translation of Hebrews 4, 1 to 11. I've already done kind of a commentary on it and an innovative and creative commentary on it already. So this will make you feel a lot better because here's just a translation of Hebrews 4, 1 to 11. And this is our working translation that we're going to work from in subsequent messages, Lord willing. Hebrews 4, 1 to 11. Therefore... While the promise remains to enter into his rest, let us be intensely concerned, lest any one of you think he has come too late to enter it. For good news has also been proclaimed to us as it was to them. But they didn't profit from the message they heard, that being the desert generation in its majority, not uniting with those who heard by faith, people like Caleb and Joshua. For we who are believing are entering into rest. Just as he who said, as I swore in my wrath, if they will enter into my rest. And yet his works have been in existence since the founding of the universe. For somewhere, I wonder where, verse 4. He speaks about the seventh day. In this way, and God rested from all his works on the seventh day. Genesis 2-2, of course. And again, in our present text, the author goes on to say, if they enter into my rest. There's Gezerah Shawa, 2-2 of Genesis, Psalm 94-11 in the Psalms. 
Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter into it, that's thousands of years later in the homily by Hebrews, and even now, a couple thousand years after that, it remains for some to enter into it, and those who were formerly evangelized did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day. You ought to be familiar with this term. Today. Saying in David, David is considered a prophet in whom God spoke. That goes all the way to Hebrews 1.1. And in fact, Hebrews 1.1 and all the way to 4.11 wraps up an entire large section of this homily. And this refers all the way back to Hebrews 1.1, God spoke in the prophets. Today, saying in David, God speaks in a prophet named David in the Psalms. After such a long time, just as it was said before, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Did you get tired of hearing that in chapter 3? Here it is again. For if Joshua, and in the Greek it's interesting because it's the word Jesus or Jesus, meaning Joshua after, who followed Moses. If Joshua had caused them to rest, God wouldn't have been speaking in David of another later day. Consequently, there remains a Sabbath observance for the people of God. For the one who enters into rest, says verse 10, ceases from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter into that rest. That's an oxymoron. Let's make every effort to enter into that rest so that we don't fall into the same pattern of disobedience and disbelief, meaning the same pattern as the desert generation. Father, use today's message, which is jam-packed with things that will be only clarified in the future. Allow us to be challenged by these things into further advancement along the path of the just, which shines brighter and brighter to the light of a perfect day. Permit us, Father, to go on to completion, for we only go on to completion if you permit, according to Hebrews 6, 1. Amen.